everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes for a special Friday episode. We're basically circling back to the topic that everybody's been talking about the last few weeks and certainly one that we've been thinking and talking about, and that is the ongoing crisis in Israel. We recorded an intro episode a couple of weeks ago. Of course, we're a little over three weeks out now from the attacks in Israel, almost three weeks out from the attacks in Israel from Hamas. And a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. Um, And so that'll be kind of one of the dynamics we bring up is why isn't more happening is a great question to be asking right now. But mostly what we want to do is answer some questions that we've gotten both uh, through So We Speak directly. And then, of course, you've taught on this a couple of times and gotten a lot of questions on what's going on in Israel. So we thought it would be good to spend a few minutes and uh, just answer some questions and just talk about what's going on in Israel and around the world. The first one being, what is the distinction when we talk about geographic Israel or we talk about the state of Israel? And the people of Israel, you know, the biblical group of people that are God's chosen people, are these interchangeable? Sometimes people, not just religiously, but even politically, are talking about Israel as if it's this spiritual group of people, like it's Moses leading them into the promised land, uh, versus the reality of the politics of Israel. Should we distinguish? How can we distinguish? Are these the same group of people? What do you think? Yes, that's a great question. I think we both agree that it's not the same group of people. There's a connection there, but it's not the same group of people. Obviously, in the Old Testament people of Israel was a group of people who were God's chosen people. And up until the time of the kings, they were a theocracy, if you will. They simply lived by the law of Moses. Uh, Once they got kings, that wasn't a good thing for them. They were theoretically godly kings, but many of them became more secular in their mindset and weren't very good kings. So you had a nation through the era of the kings that were oftentimes ruled by secular-minded rulers of people that are still very devoted to God. Fast forward after, you know, a couple of millennia of dispersions and so forth, the state of Israel was formed as a secular state, but to provide a place for ethnically Jewish and religiously Jewish people to find as a haven since they'd been persecuted. So I would say what you have today is a secular state of Israel that permits people who are ethnically Jewish to be citizens there, to live there, although there are 20% 20% of, the, of their citizenry are Arabs, but to go and live there, you need to be ethnically Jewish. And there's a remnant, if you will. There's a, a group of people who are also religiously Jewish. So I don't think they're the same group of people, but I think there's a thread there through history. So, you know, this is going to get into some religious and denominational distinctives that we talked about last time. But from your perspective, would we be accurate or inaccurate to say that this group of people has some kind of special standing with God or a covenant with God that is the same as the one in the Old Testament, different or not at all? Yeah, from from a as the way I understand the scriptures, and I think Jesus was really clear that he came to fulfill the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and he brought a new covenant. 
which Jewish people who came to Christ could be part of, as well as, through God's great mercy, Gentile believers could become part of. My personal opinion is that the state of Israel, I think clearly in the war of 1948, I just think that the only way they could have survived was God is somehow has intervened on their behalf. And I think that that is a testimony less to them still being in a covenant relationship with God and more to God's grace extends <laughs> just a one-sided grace of God that extends even beyond uh, the new covenant. So I just mm-hmm. see it as a sign of the grace of God and not an ongoing covenantal relationship. But what's your thinking on that? Well, you know, like we said, there's a lot of different views on this. You have people that mm-hmm. think there is still a covenant. There is something that God is doing with the Jewish people. There will be, you know, there's people that think that the temple will be rebuilt at some point and sacrifices will be offered again. And then you have people that no, there's nothing that God has for the Jews today that isn't essentially what he has for Christians or all people generally today. And I'm with you. I think, you know, Paul is pretty clear uh, when they say, well, is there no advantage then to being a Jew? He says, well, you know, there's a heritage and we have the oracles of God and, you know, the promises. And so in that sense, there's still something there. There's a heritage there of being the people who receive God's word and uh, the people who live in the land where all these things took place. Does that do anything spiritually for the Jews that would be any different than anybody else? I would say no. You know, salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. You know, the law uh, can't make us righteous before God. Now, with that said, the majority of the Jews that are living in Israel today are not following the law. You know, so we have some different realities as you spoke to earlier anyway. So I'm not pretending like, Oh, they're, they're following the law just like they were in the first century. But, but if you go back to what Jesus actually said to the people who were following the law in the first century, it's only through Jesus Christ that you can be made righteous. So on the one sense, we would say, no, there's no covenant in place. There's, there's nothing special in this, in the sense of salvation, but uh, is there something outside of that in terms of heritage or, the place there, um, the word of God. Of course, there's there's things that are really significant that have happened to the Jewish people. Yes, I would agree with you. I do want to respectfully uh, bring up a point of view that there are Christians who think the Jews are not finished in their story and relationship with God. Not that they think the Jews are going to be saved outside Jesus Christ. That's that's not what they think. They think they will be drawn to Jesus Christ. But I think the thinking there is that there are certain elements of that covenant with Abraham that have not yet been entirely fulfilled. Some people are hold that view. And if indeed you hold that view, then you would say that God is still concerned for the welfare of the Jews and uh, will draw them to Jesus Christ. And so that the Jewish story is not finished. Others would read Paul to say that God loves the Jews, but the covenant is now with all who uh, place their trust in Christ. Right, right. So with that said, uh, this is short-circuiting kind of one of the pop arguments for U.S. support of Israel. So So there's an argument that goes, America is a nation that is favored by God, brought about on Christian principles. Israel is brought about on, you know, Judeo-Christian principles. We should naturally band together for religious reasons. But if there isn't that religious reason, uh, and again, that's disputed, but if there isn't, 
what is the inherent interest from the United States towards Israel? Could a secular person see that the United States should support Israel? Yes, uh, that's a good question. I think leaving any religious elements aside, and those go back to the British and the Balfour Declaration uh, in the early 1900s, then of course, Truman after World War II, the U.S. supporting the establishment of it is a state of Israel. Uh, there are a lot of reasons, some of them religious, some of them humanitarian that go into that. But from a secular point of view today, if, if you don't have that sense of history, would you support Israel? And I would argue that the United States would for two pragmatic reasons. One, there are a lot of Jewish Americans here who uh, are very interested in Israel, and they're going to vote that way. They're going to vote for that kind of support. But the second is Israel is the democracy in the Middle East. They are a Western nation in the Middle East, basically. They hold our same ideas of the value of human life, uh, the Western ideas of freedom of the individual, and they are a parliamentary system. So they are a very natural ally for us in that region. So I think there are even practical reasons why the United States would see a valuable ally in Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of what's been talked about in the United States, at least, is not the support for Israel, but the support for the Palestinians. And mm -hmm. the, the, we've gotten several questions that kind of run, run along these lines. Okay, yes, there may be some good arguments for supporting Israel, but aren't there some good arguments for supporting the Palestinians as well? Or maybe it would run this way. Uh, if this is so one-sided, then why are there so many people who are standing up for the Palestinians and the Palestinian people? What would you say is the argument or the strongest argument for those who are voicing their support for the Palestinians in Gaza? Yeah, I think there, you know, there are a couple of reasons that we see this support, but I'll start with, to me, the strongest argument is not one that I share, but I understand it. And so the probably the strongest reason that people might uh, compassionately support the people uh, that are called Palestinians is in 1948, as a result of after World War II and the Holocaust and the desire for Jews to have some place to be safe, there were ideas of let's make a Jewish homeland. In other words, a land where ethnic Jews who have been decimated in the Holocaust, but have actually been persecuted around the world for a long time, where they could go and have a, a place of their own. And you know, at first, the proposal was to do this in Africa, carve out some land in Africa to give to them. But needless to say, the Jews wanted their ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. And so the UN basically in 1947 said, look, there's not a lot of people living in what is now Israel. And the people that are there don't have a strong ethnic identity. You know, they they are not a people like that have ever been a nation before. And so there's room there to make room for an Arab state and a Jewish state. And so they basically proposed and implemented a, quote, two state solution that caused some of the uh, Palestinian people, the people that were living there at that time to be relocated into what is now basically the West Bank. And then these uh, Jews came from all over the world and began to settle in the rest of it. So the idea that 
Israelis are occupiers. I think the only legitimate way to make that argument is to say that what the UN did in 1947 set this up to the disadvantage of the Palestinian people. Now, to be fair, the fact that that grievance is still going on 70, more than 70 years later, uh, really takes a lot of force out of that argument for me. But mm -hmm. if you did think that the Palestinian people were the legitimate owners of that land, I think the strongest argument you would have would be the UN's action, which they took through a vote of their members, but it was still unilaterally imposed on that region. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's the strongest argument. But a question I'd turn around to you is there's also absolutely no doubt that there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the world, uh, not just today, but historically. How big a factor do you think uh, when you when you cut through all the slogans and you cut through the rationale, how much anti-Semitism do you think you'd find at the bottom of that? I do think anti-Semitism is is a um, is a factor here, and there's a there's kind of a strange heritage of talking about anti-Semitism. It's it's become to to the people who uh, may not be anti-Semitic but are making these arguments. Anti-Semitism has become kind of a boogeyman that mm -hmm. you know it's people say it's everywhere, but it doesn't really exist. Uh, I just think the history of how the Jews have been treated in Europe, especially and in America would prove that to be inaccurate. I mean, we are obsessed as a culture with historic injustice towards minority groups, primarily African-Americans because of the legacy of slavery. Yeah. And if you believe that and you think that something needs to be done like reparations, you know, people are making real arguments that reparations need to be made. In, in California, there's a bill right now that, you know, reparations in the in, to the to the tune of millions of dollars should be given to people that have, you know, some tie, whether it's just just their ethnicity or an actual historical lineage with slavery. And yet you never hear people make that argument uh, when it comes to the Jews. And they have certainly suffered more throughout history than any of these other minority groups. So there's that may not be anti-Semitism, it might just be a neglect, but you have to get down and, and ask yourself, why are they as a minority group overlooked uh, when it comes to this kind of rivalry of injustices that we've been adjudicating, especially in America, in the last 50 years? Uh, that, that in and of itself is probably a legacy of these same kinds of arguments that have been made in, in Western Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, you can see this as, as far back as Shakespeare. Uh, you can see the stereotypes and the aggression mm -hmm. and the anti-Semitism right. towards, towards Jews. I think uh, it is a pernicious and consistent undercurrent in certain groups uh, in the West uh, that, that you know rears its head in moments like this and we see it. I don't know that I would consider this a, that a huge percentage of, of the support for Palestinians, but I think that's there. I think the second thing, and I, I, there are three things here, that, that anti-Semitism, just kind of naked anti-Semitism would be the first one. Secondly, and I wouldn't necessarily call this anti-Semitism in the same way, but it certainly is anti-Semitism. There are a lot of Muslims in uh, Western cities and in America who, no matter what we want to call it, share some of the ideological bent of Iran, of uh, the Palestinians in Gaza, 
that Israel is their enemy. Now, not everybody believes like some of these governments that you know they right. should be exterminated. Of course, not all Muslims uh, believe have any animosity towards the Jews, but there are some. You know, and this is where this is where you can get browbeaten in American discourse by saying just because not all means we can't talk about any. But but that's actually not the case. There are many people chanting in American cities and in Western cities, uh, not just, hey, we think the Palestinians are victims and we should support them, that we should take violent action against the Jews. And you can see some really ghastly things there. So right. I think there's a Western version of this. There is a Muslim version of this. Uh, and then thirdly, I think there's the general narrative that's so prevalent among progressives today of vindicating and exalting victims. I, I think the most common argument in support of the Palestinians is that they have they they have basically lived under an oppressive occupation by the Jews. And you'll see this. Th this is not fringe rhetoric. This is actually what you're seeing from almost every major media outlet right now is some subtle assertion that, you know, maybe there was some justification here because the Palestinians have been treated so poorly um, in the past. And I'll just illustrate this by pointing to an article that Barack Obama wrote last week, uh, or I guess earlier this week. His statement on Israel and Gaza is interesting. It's characteristic of a lot of statements I've seen, which is they start out with one paragraph about how bad the things were that happened in Israel and talk about how we should support Israel. But then they spend the next 10 paragraphs talking about, yeah, but Israel shouldn't do this and they shouldn't do that. And by the way, you know, the Palestinians have been pretty poorly treated to where he, he ends up with this. And I thought this was actually a little bit egregious, uh, even in this kind of article that you see. He, he, he ends up with a paragraph that says, this means acknowledging that Palestinians have also lived in disputed territories for generations that many of them were not only displaced when Israel was formed, but continue to be forcibly displaced by a settler movement that too often has received tacit or explicit support from the Israeli government. That Palestinian leaders who have been willing to make concessions for a two-state solution have too often had too little to show for their efforts, which is almost kind of a laughable sentence. That's a little comical, that part is. Yeah. And the, that the it is settler possible. issue is a legitimate issue. But, yes, yes. Uh, and that it is possible for people of goodwill to champion Palestinian rights and oppose certain Israeli government policies in the West Bank and Gaza without being anti-Semitic. Okay, th th this is a this is a this is a uh, interesting rhetorical move here. Uh, this this is like you know, basically after World War II, saying, well, well, you know, some of these people that were German officers that were committing these atrocities, they, they had difficult home lives. And, you, you know, you don't know the stories that have gone with these right. people. And, you, you know, you should be quick to judge. That in and of itself might be a true statement. But the fact that you're bringing it up now says everything that you really want to say about this situation. Palestinian support, we, we can get into this. Palestinian support is one thing. Defending the leaders who have been advocating for a solution and saying that they haven't had much to show when these people are the ones that committed these brutal atrocities less than two weeks after they happened is pretty rich. It is pretty yeah. rich. There have been plenty of opportunities for a two-state solution. And in fact, Israel has offered several right. times, several different arrangements for a two-state solution. It's been the leaders of the Palestinians who have turned it down. And why is that? Because they have a total, they have a 
kind of a totalizing ideology of it's kind of all or nothing. You know, so so you see a lot of these statements that actually just have no awareness of the historical reality of what the leadership of the Palestinians has really been all about. And so I think that would be the third thing is you have this kind of victim ideology that's separated from historical reality and people really want to support an underdog and the Palestinians are convenient underdogs. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And you know, the one common ground here, and I want to go a little different direction than President Obama went with this argument, but the one common ground is People in Gaza, in particular, to a much lesser extent, uh, much more prosperous in the West Bank. But let me just stick with Gaza for a moment. The people in Gaza undoubtedly live very bad lives. They live uh, lives of poverty. They have indeed been oppressed. Here's where I want to disagree. Their oppressor has not predominantly been Israel. Their oppressor has been their own leaders. Right. That's where I feel like if we could agree, we could actually move on this problem instead of screaming at each other. I think we all agree that everybody, including Israel, would like to see the Palestinians live better lives. People who are living better lives have less interest in murdering their neighbors. That's just right. the truth. So, the, But the problem is the reason the Gaza Strip, with all of its international aid and all of the humanitarian things that have been done, still live in poverty is because of the leadership. And I think if both sides could say, look, let's put aside our differences and agree that we want better lives for the Palestinians, but pointing the finger at Israel will never solve this problem because you're giving a pass to the people that actually caused this problem. And so right. I think... Uh, it, it, we could actually make progress on this if we would simply uh, put the blame where it actually belongs and try to solve that problem. Yes, I totally agree. And that, that's a great segue to our next question. Should the U.S. and maybe separately, should Christians support or send aid to the people in Gaza? Yeah. Uh, from on a I, I feel this This is a part of a bigger Christian question to me, Cole, and you know I've talked about this before. Anybody who's in missions in the church world understands that you can do missions to countries and it actually harms more than it hurts. In fact, there's a great book that uh, our missions director a few years ago, Pam Millington, referred to me and I read it, and it's called When Helping Hurts. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we can go about missions, helping people in ways that actually do not help them. To me, this is a, an, a perfect example of that. Sending money to Gaza is buying rockets. That's just the facts. Uh, that's not an emotional statement. It's just you can't look at this any other way. Look at the poverty of the Gazans and look at all the international aid and draw the conclusion you must draw. And so I think that any aid that is highly subject to being co-opted by Hamas is not wise. But I do think there are kinds of humanitarian aid, uh, like water, uh, medicines, uh, flood that in. Uh, Hamas is going to take everything they want off the top, but one would hope that they would at least give the leftovers of that to their people, because none of those things can be used to make weapons. So uh, this is my pragmatic point of view, is certain humanitarian aid, yes but nothing that could be diverted to a weapon because it would be diverted to a weapon. Right. I don't know, what are your thoughts on uh, what's our moral obligation for humanitarian aid there? Well, I think the goal of humanitarian aid is to help. And there are ways to give humanitarian aid that helps. And there's ways that 
ultimately will hurt. And I think we need to be wise enough to give aid that will actually help get to the right people, give them what they actually need, can't be co-opted, can't be stolen from them. Um, and that's a very difficult problem, especially because right. for a combination of reasons, uh, both inside Gaza and outside Gaza, there is no good place for many of these people to go. And right. that makes humanitarian aid even harder. Uh, but that, that's one of the consequences of being the leader of the free world is we need to figure out how to do humanitarian aid in a way that is actually humanitarian and actually aids. And so mm -hmm. much of what we do is neither of those things. Um, you know, you can throw money at these problems. You can um, go through me untrustworthy mediators uh, in ways that don't solve the problem. But we should be spending a lot of our time and energy thinking about how to help the people that are truly innocent and that truly do need aid. Um, the, the last question I think is maybe the most interesting, and it's just a purely speculative question uh, because neither of us are uh, foreign diplomats here or working for the United States government. But should the U.S. and Israel bypass the proxies and start dealing directly with Iran? And let me maybe phrase this a different way because we've gotten several questions that are more along the lines of what do you think is going to happen next or what should happen next in this conflict? Yeah, that's a great question. I heard a lot of commentators on both sides of this. Uh, I think there is a movement afoot. Uh, you basically come from two different points of view. One point of view would be we cannot afford for this to spread into a regional or even broader conflict that draws in the United States and Iran, perhaps China and Russia. And the next thing you know, we have World War III. So I do believe there are people who have that fear who simply want this thing to go away. And that's where you see the talk out of both sides of your mouth, the things that you're seeing uh, from some people in the government and some people on television is, we support Israel, but we effectively don't want Israel to do anything. That to me is driven by this, I'll just put the best face on it. It's driven by a fear of World War III. The second idea though, and this is the one to which I, I incline, I'm, I'm not a warmonger, but, History has taught me this is weakness will be met with more pushing. And I would argue that the best way to avoid this conflict spreading is actually to escalate it to go to the source, which is Iran. So I understand there are people who will disagree and they would say if, 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 for example, Iran gets drawn into this with direct attacks from the US or Israel, it will spread. I'm going to argue just the opposite. It's a lot less likely to spread if we show strength and confront with, with discretion, confront Iran and say, you're not going to play this proxy game. I think some strength here will actually work to the opposite and contain this. So that's a personal opinion, take it for what value it may have. But I do think that dealing with the proxies, if for no other reason, that's a losing game for Israel. It's a losing game for us. You're just playing whack-a-mole and you're never going to really solve this problem. So I would argue, yes, this uh, we will actually have better luck solving this problem and containing this problem by confronting the root of the problem, which is Iran. What do you think, Cole? Yeah, what I, are the I, risks and benefits I there? agree with that in that deterrence is the best option for not having a broader conflict. I think Almost everybody here outside of, you know, uh, a, a few fringe groups in the world community want this to de-escalate. Mm -hmm. 
it's just a matter of how do you de-escalate? And we've seen several times in recent history, but you can certainly look at world history and see that maybe more often than not, peace comes through strength rather than through capitulation or delay or uh, kind of vague relations between different countries. I would say that the United States has an obligation to uh, model peace through strength in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that, that would require that the United States begins to deter Iran through whatever means necessary. And I think a lot of people read the movement of the two carrier groups into the Eastern uh, Mediterranean or into the mm -hmm. uh, Gulfs to be uh, that kind of deterrence. But, but, the, the, but the problem with deterrence is you're only deterrent as much as you have a credible threat. So the problem with Iran is there have been no red lines drawn and in the past, the Biden administration and the Obama administration have both uh, drawn some red lines that they haven't followed through with. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I was listening to a podcast with Stephen Kotkin uh, on, from the Hoover Institution, who was talking mm -hmm. about the red lines that the Trump administration didn't follow through on. So th this is not a partisan issue as much as it is a, uh, the current way of viewing the Middle East is to not draw red lines with Iran. And uh, the United States in general for the last 20 years has been soft on enforcing these red lines. That's actually not the way to do deterrence. Deterrence has to come with a credible threat. Uh, and somebody like Iran, who's not doing this for geopolitical purposes, they're doing it for ideological purposes. The, right. the, the impetus for doing things this way is probably doubled. The United States needs to let them know that things will get very, very bad for them if they do certain actions with the aim that they wouldn't do those actions. This is not some kind of weird bait and switch like we actually hope to go to war with them. And so we don't right. actually deter, we just make threats. It's a, hey, we wanna bring stability to this region and to uh, the Middle East. And so you do it that way. I've been kind of surprised by how overt people have been with this strategy. I mean, I, if you look at the former, some of the former guys in the Trump administration, Bill Barr, uh, Robert O'Brien, have mm -hmm. both come out and said, this is the time to strike Iran. This is the time to get serious about deterrence in the Middle East. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of people talking about regime change in Iran. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, I was kind of surprised to hear him say that he thinks this is the pivotal time because there's nobody that will step up and support Iran. And there's nobody that will uh, stand up and stop Israel if they want to strike Iran. I'm, I don't share that opinion, but I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective on mm -hmm. this. Uh, but on the flip side, you have, you know, Thomas Friedman in The New York Times is making kind of the same argument, uh, except he doesn't want to do it through deterrence as much as he wants to do it through restraint. Uh, he believes that anything other than trying to save our hostages uh, and pressing on that as opposed to pressing on the ideology of Hamas would lead to World War Three. And so, you know, his 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 method of deterrence is more do whatever we have to do to get our hostages back and lean on whoever we've got to lean on to make that happen, rather than Israel's stated goal, which is eliminate Hamas. But he's making pretty much the same argument with just a different target. So there are a lot of people making this deterrence argument. There are a lot of different versions of it. Uh, I think it is the best argument right now for what needs to happen. And I think that only happens if you press Iran. If you, if you press Hamas, if you press Hezbollah, uh, at the end of the day, they're not the ones calling the shots. And so right. uh, it's going to be hard to get any long-term uh, progress made.
Yeah, I think as Christians, and you bring it back from a, a pragmatic or a political point of view, because we are indeed living in a political world. But I do think Christians, let's keep our true north in mind. And that is, let's let's try to do good. Let's try to improve people's lives. Obviously, we'd like to take the gospel to the world. And my prayer is that God, against all odds, will change hearts in this situation. And I think God can. But I also think God seems to work through rulers throughout all the Bible, throughout all of history. And for us as Christians, I try to keep the true north of what actually helps in the long run in this situation. And I think what would actually help in the long run is to find a way to constrain uh, the current rulers, whether that's Iran or the rulers of Hezbollah or the rulers of Hamas. I think in the long run, anything that we can do economically uh, or in other ways to restrain them will actually do more good for the Palestinian people in the long run. And so as a Christian, I try to use that as my true north in those situations. What builds it up? What makes people's lives better? And I do think that uh, under that rubric, this is justified to hold the uh, key players accountable for their actions. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.